0: As you know, I will ask you to stand as we read our scripture. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to read through to verse 11. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. I'll read it aloud, and you can just follow along on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Paul says to us now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You may be seated. If you're taking notes this morning, the title of this sermon is The Gospel for Life. Life the gospel for life. Legend has it that hundreds of years ago, an Andean man was lost in the South American jungle, hot with malarian fever. In his wanderings, he happened upon a pool of water at the base of the cinchona tree whose bark contains the chemical quinine. He drank his fill, and miraculously, he his fever lifted, and he recovered, and he survived to pass along what he'd learned. His need, in other words, led to his salvation. His necessity brought about life for him, as well as life for millions of people who have been stricken with this infectious disease since then. Friends, as we round third in our study of First Corinthians... We see here in chapter 15 that it is necessity that compels the Apostle Paul to wrap up this expansive letter by providing some of the most profound literature in existence on the core tenets of the Christian faith. Here in chapter 15, Paul again changes the subject as he has throughout this letter, but yet... He's continuing to do what he's been doing since the beginning, and that is addressing an apparent lack in the Corinthian church, a a lack of a a coherent grasp of the gospel, wrong thinking in them that has led to so many of their problems in their life together. And of course, for the last couple of months, we saw most recently that this, this lack of understanding, this lack of grasp, Led to this spiritual pride and this lack of love in the use of spiritual gifts. Well, Paul here is not giving new information per se. He is here now in 15 reminding this church of what they've clearly forgotten. Like a father stooping down to his little boy who is throwing a tantrum because he's not getting his own way. Anybody, any parents had that experience in the last hour? saying to his son, son, listen, I I love you. I love you. This is why I said no. That boy knows his father loves him, but in that moment, he needs to be reminded of his love. So with Paul. This reminder is focused on their wrong thinking, which was what? Which had to do with what? Well, remember we saw way back there in chapter 6 that the Corinthians very Greek worldview made it difficult for them to reconcile how the body, which was the physical body, which was a place of pain and, and, and corruption and, and suffering, how could this be a dwelling place for the soul for all of eternity? There were some in the, the church there that believed that the body didn't matter And so they could do whatever they wanted with the body. They could use it for illicit sex. They could use it for overindulgence in in food or or drink. And as we're going to see next week, this led to this sort of teaching, this sort of false idea in the church that there was no resurrection to come. They, they, They had part of the gospel down. They they, they believed that they had eternal life through Jesus Christ. But the part about the redemption of the body, that was a little harder to believe. And this unbelief bled down into how they thought about the church and how they thought about their physical body, but how they thought about the spiritual body, how they thought about one another. You see, friends, they had the gospel, but they were weak on parts of it. And that weakness led to a spiritual weakness and a spiritual lack of health. And so as Paul rounds third, he's compelled to provide a definitive articulation of the precious doctrine of the resurrection, which until now in Christian literature had not yet been recorded for the early church. This is a first of its kind, and it is necessity. That led, that led to the, a clear restatement of this truth like a timely, life-saving medicine for a critically ill person. Friends, if there's one message that we've been hearing in this series, it's that when an individual Christian or a local church deviates from the message of the gospel, he or she wades into dangerous waters. Indeed, so many of our problems as Christians stem from our lack of a coherent grasp of the gospel. The Bible says, friends, that sin and death are our two greatest enemies. These are foes that we wage war against, uh, against every day, whether we think about it or not. Sin and death. And the gospel says that these foes have been defeated by the crucified and risen Christ. But when we fail to live our lives out of that reality, the result is a chaotic, divisive, cold-loving, fearful, anxious heart. So friends, as we begin this new year, 2023, do any of those adjectives describe your heart this morning? Are you lamenting a strained relationship in your life? Even this morning as you sit here, you automatically thought of someone when I said that. Is your heart restless? Are you anxious about fill in the blank? Friends, Paul would remind all of us, brothers and sisters, of the gospel you once received. And friends, perhaps you're here today because you're here out of necessity. It is your necessity today that will lead to a rediscovery of this life-saving treasure. So let's look at the gospel for life. I have three headings for you. Uh, You don't have to write these down, I'll give them to you again, but I'll give them to you ahead of time. The gospel's significance, the gospel's content, and the gospel's achievement. Looking at number one, let's, uh, verse number one and two, let's look at the gospel's significance. Here, I, I want us to take note of how Paul the Apostle emphasizes the necessity of the gospel for everyday life. Paul says here, in so many words, that this message is not a one time announcement that has only temporary utility, but has life changing power for the past, the present, And the future for those who hear. Tim Keller famously said the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of the Christian life. It is inaccurate to think that the gospel is what saves non-Christians and then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel, and then we are transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. Amen. So verse 1, Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, brothers and sisters, Adolf foy it means both brothers and sisters, he's talking to the whole church, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Paul says, if you're a Christian today, it is only because you received, you believed the message announcing God's intervention to save people who were completely unable to save themselves. God, through this message, reached down into the bodies of people who were as good as dead, like a corpse rotting at the bottom of the ocean and raised them up and breathed life into them and put them on a lifeboat. That's the gospel. That's what it does. But then he goes on to say, the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved. So this is a present and a future Implication here. He says, in other words, even though they've been saved from spiritual death, they still haven't arrived at the safety of the heavenly harbor. They're still in the lifeboat of the gospel, and they will be until God is finished with the work of salvation that He began in them. And friends, this is why He offers this caveat in verse 2. He says, if, if you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. Paul says, I preached a specific message to you five, six years ago when I visited you in Corinth. I preached it every day for 18 months while I was with you. You believed it. You received it. And that is saving you. But only so long as you keep on holding to this message. Only so long as you remain in the lifeboat. Now, friends, don't don't misunderstand. It's not that the Corinthians were abandoning the gospel altogether. That's called apostasy. That's not what he's referring to here. No, but they are deviating from it functionally. They were allowing cultural influence to inform and color their understanding of God's grace to them in Christ rather than God's grace to them in Christ informing and coloring the way they see their world. So Paul here is saying any deviation from the gospel is akin to believing in vain. In other words, if you throw out part of it to concede to cultural narrative or feelings or preferences, the whole thing becomes ineffective in its saving work, and you are in danger of abandoning it altogether. David Garland, in his commentary and the Baker exegetical commentary, says it well. He says, If they do not hold firmly to what has been preached about the resurrection, they jeopardize their future with God. If they do not have faith that holds out, they believed in vain. The resurrection is the keystone that integrates the incarnation and Christ's atoning death. If it is removed, the whole gospel will collapse. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we'll see this next week, humans remain under the tyranny of sin and death and their bouts of doubt and despair are fully justified. Dear ones, what Paul's saying here is crucial for us today. Too many professing Christians, maybe even people in this room, believe an incomplete gospel in the sense that it does not have a notable impact on the most important areas of their lives. Sure, we may not have adopted the Corinthian error. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe that Jesus rose again. But maybe we haven't held fast to the truth that Christ is the only Savior for our sin and the only Savior who stopped death dead in its tracks. So what happens is it works out like this. From day to day, we find ourselves trying so hard to make up for our lack, vowing to do better this year, vowing to be kinder to ourselves, vowing to organize our lives in a better way so that we have peace and safety, getting better at productivity, getting better at planning, getting better at doing life. When all the while our eyes are off of Christ. All the while our, we're being informed by a cultural narrative or a worldly narrative that has nothing to do what God is with what God has done for us. Or maybe we find ourselves softening to our world's ideas. Softening to our world's ideas about sexuality, maybe. Marriage, romantic Relationships. It's because we want to be loved. It's because we want people to accept us. It's because we want to be in, be in with the in crowd, and so we're willing to make compromises out of fear that we might be a part of the minority, even though Jesus promised, "If you are in me, you will be hated by this world." We don't want to be hated. We want to be loved. We want to be accepted. And friends, that's what the gospel says to us. You are loved and accepted if you've trusted Christ. We make compromises so that we don't feel alone. Friends, can't we see if we do that, we're wading into dangerous waters? And in reality, it's because Christ does not satisfy our deepest longings. He's a mere footnote in the story of our lives, pushed aside from his rightful place as the defining narrative of our lives. And so we're filled with doubt. We're filled with despair. And when the next catastrophe happens, we lose all hope. Friends, if this is us, if this is you, God says today, today to you through his word, let me remind you of the gospel so that you can once again hold fast to it. There is only one lifeboat that God has provided to safely get you to that heavenly harbor. And I want to tell you, friends, it's not that tasty, vain philosophy of our society. That lifeboat is not also the tasty, empty praise of men. No, it's the gospel that you once believed that you once received with joy. Do you remember that day? It's the gospel in which you stand. It's the gospel by which you are being saved. So, pastor, what is the gospel? You keep saying that word like we're supposed to know what you're talking about. What's the gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Paul tells us in this next point, the gospel's content. Verses 3 to 7. Paul goes on to say when he was with them, he delivered this gospel that he received. The true gospel is at the very heart a message about historical facts that can only be received. It's not something that's made up by smart men. And men can either receive it or reject it. It comes from God, and He puts it on you, and He says, Do you receive it or do you reject it? Now, for Paul, He received it on the road to Damascus. Paul was going about opposing the name of Jesus, locking up new Jewish Christians under the authority and commission of the chief priests. And later in Acts chapter 26, Paul will stand before King Herod Agrippa. By the way, that hasn't happened yet at the writing of this letter. This will happen later on in the book of Acts. And he will recount his conversion experience to Agrippa. Let me read a part of that for you. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people, that's the Jews, and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Amen. So the risen Christ... The resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul and changed his heart and chose him to be a messenger of this good news. And that good news is that God in his grace acted in Christ to save human beings from sin and from Satan. This message, friends, is literally the thing of first and greatest importance in Paul's mind. Everything else he delivers to them is secondary in nature. This message has no message above it that ranks above it. So this message is what? Well, first let me point out, that verses 3b through 5 are considered by all virtually, virtually all New Testament scholars to be words from a very early creed in the Christian church. In other words, this was a formal statement of belief that set the first Christians apart from all other belief systems. It's more concise then, but it was a forerunner to creeds like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And we know this because of the grammatical wording of these lines in the Greek, and by a word that's used that sort of sometimes acts like quotation marks in the Greek, since there are, of course, no punctuation marks in original uh, or, or Koine Greek. So Paul's repeating this short creed that was well familiar to them. This creed was, was their colors. This was, this was like a ship flying her flag on the high seas. This statement was their identity badge. And here's what it was. Christ died For our sins, according to the scriptures, he was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas and the twelve. One time, I taught a bunch of smaller kids in a service, and I said, If you want to say the gospel with one hand, you can do it with five fingers. Christ died for our sins. There it is. It's not the full gospel, but it's the part they needed to know at that moment. So I gave them that. Maybe I'll do something with the other hand. But with this short statement, the gospel is presented. When we speak of the gospel Sunday after Sunday, we are referring, friends, to this creedal statement, which speaks to the gospel's accomplishment and its intentionality and its historicity. So what does the gospel do? Paul says the gospel does something. And we see it right here. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. At the very heart of this message, this creedal statement, this word, is the God-man who died as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of others. And the fact that this creed refers to sin, biblically wrongdoing, biblical rebellion, biblically law-breaking, means that there is hostility, separation between God and man due to our sins. And God says the penalty for our sin is death. So when early Christians rehearsed this creed and they said Christ died for our sins, they understood this to mean that Jesus, the righteous one, bore the penalty of unrighteous ones in order to bridge the impassable chasm between them and God. Jesus literally traded his life for their death and took on his death and gave them his life. And Paul goes on to say this was all done according to plan. See verse 3, verse 4, this was in accordance with the Scriptures. By saying that Christ died for our sins and was buried and raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, the early Christians were acknowledging Christ's saving work was not plan B. It wasn't something that God had to figure out in the last moment because this is not what he intended. This was planned from the foundation of the world. And these Corinthian scriptures, which was the Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament, their scriptures, the Bible, prove this. I won't go into super deep detail, but you can see it all throughout the Old Testament. From the animal that was provided to Adam and Eve to cover their shame in the garden, to Israel's rescue from Egyptian slavery set in motion by the death of the Passover lamb, God had been providing a sacrificial system to atone for the sins of the people. And it came to a head when Isaiah got to that precious 53rd chapter and said that his suffering servant, God's suffering servant, would be like a lamb that has led to the slaughter, cut off for the transgressions of God's people, numbered with the transgressors, bearing the sin of many, and buried with a rich man in his death. Friends, everything that's been accomplished for your and my redemption was all according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. But verse 4 Paul goes on to say, he was raised. He was raised. Paul actually switches the verb tense from the other two verbs before that and switches to the perfect passive here when he says he was raised. In the English, the effect here is that Jesus was raised and he still lives. This isn't something... This isn't something that just happened in the past and that we're supposed to look back now and try to graph after straws. No, Jesus still lives, Paul says. This means, friends, that until the next stage of redemption comes, which is when the clouds part and Christ steps off his throne and comes down to collect his own and the dead are raised. It means until that happens, friends, God is not done yet his plan is still unfolding with each passing hour. Yes, death will take every one of us in this room unless Christ comes first. Yes, sin still wages war against us. But friends, Jesus was raised, and he still lives, and that means things are not getting worse for God's people, they're getting better. New life is coming, and if ever we grieve over death and over the sin that vexes our souls, Paul gave us this so that we'd repeat this creed and know that this was happening exactly according to plan, that Jesus is still alive and everything is going to be okay. Paul's readers were struggling in unbelief. So he says, I remind you of this truth that you're standing in, that's saving you. Friends, in our unbelief do we remind ourselves of this creedal statement. These are our, this is our flag, these are our colors. They tell us who we are. Who's telling you who you are? Are you? Is your social media feed? Are your friends telling you who you are? Or does the gospel define you? Paul knows, of course, that just like all of us, these brothers and sisters forget these truths, and so I I think he's encouraging them here, if they can, to go spend some time with others that were eyewitnesses of this event. Chances are the Corinthians had a friend of a friend of a friend who was still alive who actually saw the risen Christ in the flesh. This is only 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. So he says, Peter, Cephas, he was still alive. The 12, that were Jesus' chosen men, they were still alive except maybe James, the brother of John. Another James, Jesus' half-brother, he was still alive. And Paul adds this little bit to the creed. He says, Jesus also appeared to more than 500 brothers at once, most of whom are still alive, though though some have died. Paul is saying, if you want verifiable reliability of your faith, go and talk to an eyewitness. They could do this. Now someone says, I can't do that. 2,000 years ago, you say, who do you want me to go talk to? That saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Friends, I want to tell you something. For 2,000 years, God has been using eyewitnesses to establish the reliability of the Bible's claim that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and was raised again, and still lives. For 2,000 years. Many of you in this room have believed this creed not by looking at ordinary categories of historical proof like eyewitnesses or artifacts, but by reading and hearing the historical account, by hearing the gospel word preached to you from someone else who was an eyewitness. There's a rather humorous story, I think, told of a 19th century English preacher named William Haslam He'd been a preacher for some time in Cornwall, which is in the southwest tip of England. One day, he stood up to preach a sermon. Been a preacher for some time, and uh, he was preaching a sermon on Matthew chapter 22. And there, Jesus is talking about the scribes and the Pharisees who did not believe that he was the Son of God, and that he came to save people like them. And so here's Reverend Haslam preaching. And as he's preaching, he, he comes under conviction. And in his heart, he was able to admit to himself, William, you are no better than the Pharisees yourself. You don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he came to save you any more than those Pharisees did. And all of a sudden, he describes a wonderful light and joy coming into his soul. I don't know what he was doing, but there must have been a pause. And just then, someone stood up in the crowd and screamed at the top of his lungs, the pastor's been converted. The pastor's been converted. Hallelujah. And there were shouts of praise, and the doxology song broke out, and everyone sang loudly, and there was 300 people in the room. Everybody singing and rejoicing, and when the excitement died down, William looked out, and he could hear in the crowd around 20 or so who were weeping. And they were weeping because they came under the same conviction and they were crying out for mercy and they came to trust Christ on that day. And so he goes home in a daze and he doesn't know what's going on and then they come back together for the midweek service and the whole house is just absolutely packed out and people are being just swept away under the weight of conviction and and children and notorious drunkards and sinners from the community were there and for the next several years there was a revival in Cornwall all because God chose an unconverted minister to work out by the power of the Spirit the implications for what Jesus had done for him. Friends, I wonder, and I'm speaking of my, myself here, if, if like our Corinthian counterparts, so much of our depression and our, our grumbling in our hearts, so much of our resistance to be incredible witnesses of this truth that has changed our lives. So much of this is because we have forgotten how to work out the implications of what Jesus has done for us personally. (laughs) Friends, at the end of the day, the gospel must become real for us. In Galatians, Paul went so far as to say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Seven times he looks at the gospel and he puts himself into that. Friends, can you say that with Paul? Can you say that when Jesus died on the cross, it was just as good as if you were on the cross with him? Can you say that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was just like you were raised from the dead too? Can you put yourself in the gospel story? Have you personalized this creed? Are there others around you who have been eyewitnesses of the same thing that you're surrounding yourself with? Friends, you, you might be grieving today. Maybe you're grieving a difficult situation that you've been stuck in. Maybe you're grieving over a besetting sin. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one. My friends, one of the telltale signs that you've believed this creed and you've personalized it for yourself is that even on your absolute horrible worst day, you still have hope. You still have a flicker of hope. And it's not one that's rooted in a better tomorrow. Tomorrow might be worse than today. No, your hope is rooted in the fact that there is a risen Christ who died and now sits on the right hand interceding for you. In your grief, do you have this hope? Friends, have you worked out the implications of this hope? Have you applied the work? What does the work of Christ say to the argument you had with your spouse just a couple of hours ago? What does the work of Christ speak to this new difficulty you're going through at work or an old difficulty? What does the work of Christ speak about the child who no longer talks to you who no longer keeps in touch? What does the work of Christ speak to that sin that keeps on resurfacing? What does the work of Christ speak to that difficulty that you have paying those bills and making ends meet? What does the work of Christ say to that pers- about that person who spoke hurtful words to you, who offended you? What does the work of Christ say to those hours wasted on social media scrolling and the resultant anxiety and judgmentalism in your heart? We gotta work it out. This is what it means to hold fast. And this is what Paul himself had done time and time again. And I have like five minutes left, so I'm going to give you my last point, the gospel's achievement. After appearing to these 500 brothers, Jesus appeared to James. This was the half-brother of Jesus. James did not believe in Jesus before his resurrection. And he appeared to the whole group of New Testament apostles, not sure in what way. Paul just says it. But then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to Paul. Now that word for untimely born is a Greek, is a, a Greek word, and it's a rather graphic Greek word. In the original, it's used of an aborted baby, a stillborn baby, really any kind of premature birth. So why does Paul use this term? Well, first he wants to show that the appearance of Christ to him was an abnormal appearance. Whereas Christ appeared to all the other people he's mentioned in in the normal sense, to Paul he appeared to him in an unusual way, like a baby born at the wrong time. But secondly, I think he's using this because he's highlighting the undeserved grace of God that pursued him even though he was the least likely candidate for his grace. What do I mean? Well, Paul was a wretched man. Like a stillborn baby, he was lifeless. Grotesque. Why? Because before Christ saved him, he was literally opposing God, thinking he was doing God a favor. And then Jesus appeared and he showed him his error. And that's why he can say in verse 10 By the grace of God, alone I am. What I am. You see, friends, the Apostle Paul, or anyone who is truly a Christian, can say that their salvation, and they can't say that it comes from any other place, they can only say that their salvation comes from God. It has nothing to do with some effort on your part. There are forms of Christianity that claims that grace is something that we cooperate with God to receive, whether that's by being baptized or by doing sacraments or doing good deeds or doing penance. But Paul says to be a Christian is to receive that which God gives you despite the fact that you don't deserve it. Paul says his grace is toward me. Paul is the direct object in salvation sentence. He appeared to me. His grace was to me. His grace is with me. And friends, in churches the world over, there are so many well-meaning people who truly believe deep down that their standing with God depends on them, that it depends on their good Bible reading and the fact that they don't use curse words and the fact that they repent every day of their sins and that they have such good faith or weak faith or faith at all or their profession. Dear ones, that is not the gospel. The gospel is a message on behalf of sinners that the sinless Christ came for them and on behalf of them. The gospel is about what God achieved, and in his sovereign grace, granting to people who are so unworthy of that grace, and we get into turmoil of heart and depression and fear or pride or arrogance when we forget that Christ already stood in our place, that the guilty verdict has been handed down already to him and removed from us. We've been given the forgiven verdict, and guys, we're people that oppose God every. We want to talk about grace and mercy shown to sinners. And friends, Paul never forgot this. He never had gospel amnesia. What Christ did for him was never far from his thoughts and his letters prove that he was continually working out the implications of the gospel in his everyday life. He leaked gospel. Friends, do we leak Gospel? Or have we developed gospel amnesia? Alistair Begg, preacher, counsels us when he says, If I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, trust my feelings. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends on me. As soon as you go there, it will lead you to either abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. It is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. We are not saved by good works. We are not saved as a result of our profession of faith. We are saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. Friends, as I close, what's your default today? Is it abject despair or is it a horrible arrogance and self-righteousness? Friends, I've been a Christian a long time or long enough to know that on the two sides of the gospel road are two ditches. One is arrogance and one is despair. And when you veer off the road, you're going to fall into one of each of those ditches. If you're slogging today in one of those ditches as this new year begins, chances are You need to relearn, I need to relearn what Paul and every godly saint ever since has learned and that is to receive again and to stand in again and hold fast again to the gospel of grace. We need to preach to ourselves like Martin Luther once once preached. The gospel is that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners and to crush hell and overcome death and to take away sin and satisfy the law and that what you must do is nothing but accept this And look up to your Redeemer and firmly believe that he has done all this for your good and that Christ has bestowed on you all his works. So that, friends, when you look in the mirror, when you leave this place and you see the sad reality that you have broken the law again and that sin is still present and you and I still fear death and we still fear hell, the gospel will speak a final word over me. Christ will surely fulfill fulfill his promise to save me upon this and on this alone I anchor my confidence who are you today are you that miserable unworthy Christian are you that arrogant Christian or maybe you that unbeliever who feels like you're beyond hope you want to know the most freeing thing we can do today brothers and sisters friends the most freeing thing we can do is look up to our redeemer with open hands and say, I receive this grace that you're offering to me. This may be the first time some of you have ever done that. And it may be the one millionth time some of others of us have done that. But by God's word and through his Holy Spirit, I speak with this authority. This is what he's telling us to do today. Receive. Receive. We're going to pray. I'm going to pray for all of us. Pastor Jim and his wife Sharon are going to be over here on the side. If you would like specific prayer and you would like some help working out maybe some of these implications that we were talking about, or maybe you're not a Christian at all. You've, you've never ever trusted Christ. You've never looked at him and said, I believe alone in what Jesus has done for me. I accept that sacrifice. I accept his work and his resurrection on my behalf. I trust him. Maybe you've never done that before and you don't really know what that looks like for you. I want they'll, they'll be able to be over there to help you walk through that. So let's pray and then they'll hang out over there and then we'll sing. Lord, I believe that they could be someone here today who is here today because you are reaching down into the life and to the soul of this individual because you want this old creed to be the colors that they fly on their lifeboat for the rest of their lives until they reach that safe harbor. Father, I pray right now that through your Holy Spirit, you would give him the grace to receive these truths. to whether for the first time or the millionth time, look to Christ and say, I trust you. I believe that you were brutally killed on a cross to take away my sin and to put me in right standing with the Father. I believe that you were buried and that you rose again so that you could ascend to the right hand of the Father to intercede for me today. And I believe you're coming back again. Receive me into your kingdom. Thank you that this message speaks to the most seasoned saint and the most lost sinner help us this year Lord do a work in Grace City Church that we never expected help us to become happy eyewitnesses of the risen Christ do this for your glory I pray in Jesus name